Section 16 of History of Australia and New Zealand from 1696 to 1890. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of Australia and New Zealand from 1696 to 1890 by Alexander and George Sutherland. Section 16. Queensland, 1823 to 1890. Number 1. Moreton Bay. When Captain Cook in 1770 sailed into the wide opening of Moreton Bay, several of his friends on board observed the sea to be paler than usual, and formed the opinion that, if a careful search were made along the shores, it would be found that a large river fell into the sea somewhere in the neighbourhood. Cook attached so little weight to this idea that he did not stay to make any examination, and when, about twenty years later, Captain Flinders surveyed the same bay, he saw no trace of a river, though he had made special search for one. But the reports of both these travellers were subsequently found to be erroneous, for in 1823, when Governor Brisbane sent the discoverer Oxley in The Mermaid to select a place for a new convict station in the northern district of New South Wales, Morton Bay was found to receive the waters of a large and important river. His success was, at least in part, due to accident. Among the blacks on the shore of the bay was a naked man, who was seen to be white. This man was taken on board. He had sailed in an open boat from Sydney, with three others, about a year before, but had been driven by gales out to sea and far north. They had landed and had been well received by the blacks. The rest had started to walk along the shore to Sydney, but one man, named Pamphlet, had remained with the natives, and it was he who was now rescued by Oxley to whom he gave the information that, when roving inland with the tribe among whom he was living, he had seen a fine river of fresh water. Under the guidance of Pamphlet, Oxley left his little vessel in the bay, and with a boat entered upon the broad current of the stream. Before sunset he had ascended about twenty miles, and had been delighted by the richness of the scenery and the magnificence of the timber. On the following day, he proceeded thirty miles farther up, and throughout the whole distance found the stream to be broad and of sufficient depth to be navigatable for vessels of considerable size. Oxley was justly proud of his discovery, and wished to penetrate still farther into the forests that lay beyond. But his boat's crew had been so exhausted by their long row under a burning sun that he could not go no further, and found it necessary to turn and glide with the current down to his vessel, which he had reached late on the fourth night. To the stream he had thus discovered he gave the name of the Brisbane River. 2. Convict Station On his return, he recommended this district as a suitable position for the new convict station, and during the following year, 1824, he was sent to form the settlement. With a small party consisting of convicts and their guards, he landed at Redcliffe, now known as Humpy Bong a peninsula which juts out into Morton Bay a few miles above the mouth of the Brisbane. Here the settlement remained for a few months, but afterwards it was moved twenty miles up the river to that pleasant bend which is now occupied by the city of Brisbane. Here, under Captain Logan, the first permanent commandant of the settlement, large stone barracks for the soldiers was erected, and lines of jails and other buildings for the convicts and in these, for twelve or fourteen years, the lonely community dwelt, about a thousand twice-convicted prisoners and a party of soldiers and officials to keep them in order. No free person was allowed to approach within fifty miles of the settlement, unless with special permission, 
which was very sparingly granted. The place, convict settlement of the harshest type, and stern were the measures of that relentless commandant, Captain Logan, who flogged and hanged the unfortunate people under his charge until he became hated with a deadly hatred. He was an active explorer, and did much to open up the interior country, till at length, on a trip which he was accompanied by only some convicts, they glutted their vengeance by spearing him and battered his head with a native tomahawk. 3. The Squatters For thirteen years the settlement was not affected by anything that went on in that outside world from which it was so completely excluded. But in 1840 the onward progress of squatting enterprise brought free men with sheep and cattle close to Morton Bay. That fine district, discovered by Alan Cunningham in 1827, and called by him the Liverpool Plains, had almost immediately attracted squatters, who by degrees filled up the whole of the available land, and those who were either newcomers, or who'd found their flocks increasing too fast for the size of their runs, were forced to move outward, and, as a rule, northward. It was about the year 1840 that the pioneers entered that fine tableland district called by Alan Cunningham in 1829, the Darling Downs, and when the year 1844 was ended, there were at least 40 squatters over the Queensland borders, with nearly 200,000 sheep and 60,000 cattle, and with many hundreds of shepherds and stockmen to attend them. 4. A Free Settlement Whilst the squatters were gathering all round, a change took place at Brisbane itself. We have seen that about 1840, the English government had resolved to discontinue transportation, except to Van Diemen's Land. The world, therefore, went forth that Brisbane was no longer to be a place of exile for criminals. It was to be the home of free men and the capital of a new district. In 1841, Governor Sir George Gibbs arrived from Sydney and laid out the plan of what is now a handsome city. Blocks of land were offered for sale to free settlers and eagerly bought. The governor also laid out a little town, now called Ipswich, farther inland. Meanwhile, the township of Drayton, and that which is now much larger, Toowoomba, began to gather round two wayside inns established for the convenience of travellers. Captain Wickham was sent up to assume the position of superintendent of Morton Bay, which thus became practically a new colony, just as Port Phillip was in the south, though both were then regarded as only districts of New South Wales. Chapter 5. The Natives in these early years, the squatters of the district were scattered, at wide intervals throughout a great extent of country, and, being in the midst of native tribes who were not only numerous, but of a peculiarly hostile disposition, they often found themselves in a very precarious situation. The blacks swarmed on the runs, killing the sheep and stealing the property of the squatters, who had many annoyances to suffer and injuries to guard against, but their retaliation oftentimes exhibited a ferocity and inhumanity almost incredible in civilized men. The government troopers showed little compunction in destroying scores of natives and, strange to say, the most inhuman atrocities were committed by blacks who were employed to act as troopers. On one occasion, after the murder of a white man by two blacks, a band of troopers in the dead of night stealthily surrounded the tribe to which the murderers belonged whilst it was holding a corroboree and, at a given signal, fired a volley into the midst of the dancing crowd, a blind and ruthless revenge from which, however, the two murderers escaped. On another occasion, the shepherds and hut-keepers out on a lonely plain had begun to grow afraid of the troublesome tribes in the neighbourhood, and cunningly made them a present of flour, in which white arsenic had been mixed, 
half a tribe might then have been seen writhing and howling in the agony of this frightful poison till death relieved them on such occasions the black tribes took terrible revenge when they could and so the hatred of black for white and white for black became stronger and deadlier chapter six separation in less than five years after the removal of convicts the district began to agitate for separation from new south wales and in eighteen fifty one a petition was sent to the queen urging the right of morton bay to receive the same concession as had in that year been made to port philip on this occasion their request was not granted but on being renewed about three years later it met with very favourable reception and in the following year an act was passed by the imperial parliament giving the british government power to constitute the new colony again as in the case of port philip delays occurred and in eighteen fifty six a change of ministry caused the matter to almost be forgotten it was not until the year eighteen fifty nine that the territory to the north of the twenty-ninth parallel of latitude was proclaimed a separate colony under the title of queensland in the december of that year sir george f bowen the first governor arrived and the little town of brisbane with its seven thousand inhabitants was raised to the dignity of being a capital the seat of government of a territory containing more than six hundred and seventy thousand square miles though inhabited by only twenty five thousand persons a few months later queensland received its constitution which differed but little from that of new south wales there were established two houses of legislature one consisting of members nominated by the governor and the other elected by the people chapter seven gold in eighteen fifty eight it was reported that gold had been discovered far to the north on the banks of the fitzroy river and in a short time many vessels arrived in keppel bay their holds and decks crowded with men who eagerly landed and hastened to canoona a place about sixty or seventy miles up the river but it was soon discovered that the gold was confined to a very small area and by no means plentiful and those who had spent all their money in getting to the place were in a wretched plight a large population had been hurriedly gathered in an isolated region without provisions or the possibility of obtaining them their expectations of the goldfield had been disappointed and for some time the fitzroy river was one great scene of misery and starvation till the governments of new south wales and victoria sent vessels to convey the unfortunate diggers away from the place some however in the extremity of the famine had selected portions of the fertile land on the banks of the river and had begun to cultivate them as farms they were pleased with the district and having settled down on their land found what is now the thriving city of rockhampton a great amount of success however attended a subsequent effort in eighteen sixty seven the government of queensland offered rewards varying from two hundred to two thousand pounds for the discovery of paying goldfields the result was that during the course of the next two or three years many districts were opened up to the miner towards the end of eighteen sixty seven a man named nash who had been wandering in an idle way over the country found an auriferous region of great extent at gympie about a hundred and thirty miles from brisbane he concealed his discovery for a time and set to work to collect as much of the gold as possible before attracting others to the spot in the course of a day or two he gathered several hundred pounds worth of gold being however often disturbed in his operations by the approach of travellers on the adjacent road 
when he had to crouch among the bushes until the footsteps died away and he could again pursue his solitary task. After some time, it seemed impossible to avoid discovery, and lest anyone f should forestall him in making known the district, he entered Maribra, not far away, announced his discovery, and received the reward. A rush took place to Gimpy, which was found to be exceedingly rich, and it was not long before a nugget worth about four thousand pounds was met with close to the surface. Far to the north on the Palmer River, a tributary of the Mitchell, there have been discovered rich gold fields, where, in spite of the great heat and dangers from the blacks, there are crowds of diggers at work. Many thousands of Chinamen have settled down in the district, and to these the natives seem to have a special antipathy. But all the stories which Australia offers of gold-digging romance are eclipsed by that of the Mount Morgan mine. Near Rockhampton, and in the midst of that very district to where the diggers had rushed in 1858, but in which they had starved through being unable to find gold, a young squatter bought from the government of Queensland a selection of six hundred and forty acres. It was on a rocky hill, so barren that he considered it useless, and was glad to sell it for six hundred and forty pounds to three brothers of the name of Morgan. These gentlemen were lucky enough to find out that the dirty grey rocks of which the hill was composed were very richly mixed with gold, so that twenty or thirty pounds worth of gold could be got by crushing and washing every cartload of rock. They immediately set to work, and before long showed that they were the possessors of the richest gold mine in the world. A year or two later, the hill was sold at a price equivalent to eight millions of pounds, and it was now reckoned that it contains gold to the value of at least double that sum. What a strange adventure for the man who owned it! and reckoned it worth almost nothing. Chapter 8. Cotton Throughout most of the colony, the climate is either tropical or semi-tropical, and it is therefore, in its most fertile parts, well suited to the growth of cotton and sugar. About the year 1861, the cultivation of the cotton plant was commenced on a small scale, but although the plantations were found to thrive, yet the high rate of wages which prevailed in Queensland and the low price of cotton in Europe caused the first attempts to be very unprofitable. Matters were changed, however, in 1863, for then a great civil war was raging in America, and as the people of the southern states were prevented by the long chain of blockading vessels stationed by the northern states along their coasts from sending their cotton to Europe, there was a great scarcity of cotton in England, and its price rose to be exceedingly high. This was a favourable opportunity for Queensland. The plantations were, of course, still as expensive as ever, but the handsome prices obtained for the cotton not only covered its great expense, but also left considerable profits. The cultivation of sugar cane was introduced in 1865, and after a few years had passed away, great fields of waving cane were to be seen in various parts of the country, growing ripe and juicy beneath the tropical sun. Chapter 9. Polynesian Labour The prices of cotton and sugar remained high for some years, but when the American Civil War was over, they fell to their former rates, and planters of Queensland found it necessary to obtain some cheaper substitute for their white labourers. At first, it was proposed to bring over Hindus from India, but nothing came of this idea, and afterwards, when Chinese were introduced, they were not found to give the satisfaction expected. But it happened that one of the planters named Robert Towns was the owner of a number of ships which traded to the South Sea Islands, 
and having persuaded a few of the islanders to cross to Queensland, he employed them on a sugar plantation. He took some little trouble in teaching them the work he wished them to do, and found that they soon became expert at it. As the remuneration they required was very small, they served admirably to supply the necessary cheap labour. The practice of employing these South Sea Islanders, or Kanakas, as they were called, soon became general, and parts of Queensland had all the appearance of the American plantations, where crowds of dusky figures, decked in the brightest of colours, plied their labours with laughter and with song, among the tall cane brakes or the bursting pods of cotton. The Kanakas generally worked for a year or two in the colony, then, having received a bundle of goods, consisting of cloth, knives, hatchets, beads, and so forth, to the value of about ten pounds, they were again conveyed to their palm-clad islands. A system of this kind was apt to give rise to abuses, and it was found that a few of the more unscrumptious planters, not content with the ordinary profits, stooped to the shameful meanness of cheating the poor islander out of his hard-earned reward. They hurried him on board a vessel, and sent after him a parcel containing a few shillings worth of property. Then, when he reached his home, he found that all his toil and his years of absence from his friends had procured him only so much trash. Happily, this was not a very frequent occurrence. But there was another abuse, both common and glaring. As the plantations in Queensland increased, they required more labourers than were willing to leave their homes in the South Sea Islands and, as the captains of vessels were paid by the planters a certain sum of money for every kanaka they brought over, there was a strong temptation to carry off the natives by force, when, by other means, a sufficient number could not be obtained. There were frequent conflicts between the crews of labour vessels and the inhabitants of the islands. The white men burnt the native villages and carried off crowds of men and women, while, in revenge, the islanders often surprised a vessel and massacred its crew and in such cases the innocent suffered for the guilty. The sailors often had the baseness to disguise themselves as missionaries, in order the more easily to effect their purpose, and when the true missionaries, suspecting nothing, approached the natives on their errand of good will, they were speared or clubbed to death by the unfortunate islanders. But, as a rule, the Kanakas were themselves the sufferers. The English vessels pursued their frail canoes, ran them down, and sank them. Then, while struggling in the sea, the men were seized and thrust into the hold, and the hatches were fastened down. When, in this dastardly manner, a sufficient number had been gathered together, and in the dark interior of the ship was filled with steaming mass of human beings densely huddled together, the captains set sail for Queensland, where they landed those of their living cargoes, who had escaped the deadly pestilence which filth and confinement always engendered in such cases. CHAPTER Ten, THE POLYNESIAN LABOURERS ACT These were the deeds of a few ruthless and disreputable seamen, but the people of Queensland as a whole had no sympathy with such barbarities, and in 1868 a law was passed to regulate the labour traffic. It enacted that no South Sea Islander were to be brought into the colony unless the captain of the vessel could show a document signed by a missionary or British consul stating that they had left the island of their own free will. The government agents were to accompany every vessel, in order to see that the Kanakas were well treated on the voyage, and on leaving the colony no labourer was to receive less than six pounds worth of goods for every year he had worked. These regulations were of great use, but they were often evaded, 
for by giving a present to the king of an island the sailors could bribe him to force his people to express their willingness before the missionary the trembling men were brought forward and under the fear of their chief's revenge declared their perfect readiness to sail sometimes the government agents on board the vessel were bribed not to report the misdeeds of the sailors and in the case of the jason on which the agent was too honest to be so bribed he was chained below by the captain on the pretence that he was mad when the ship arrived in queensland the unfortunate man was found in a most miserable state of filth and starvation for this offence the captain was arrested tried and imprisoned whatever regulations may be made a traffic of this sort will occasionally have its dark and ugly features yet it may be truly enough said that while the kanakas have been of great service to queensland the colony has also been of service to them the islanders are generally glad to be taken they have better food and easier lives on the plantations than they have had in their homes they gather a trunk full of property such as passes for great wealth in the islands and when they are sent home after two years absence to their palms and coral shores it is in full costume generally in excellent spirits and always more or less civilized sometimes poor fellows they are stripped and plundered by their naked relatives but at any rate they help by what they have learnt to improve the style of life in those native groves so sunny but so full of superstition and barbarous rites chapter eleven present state of the colony in eighteen sixty eight sir george bowen was sent to govern new zealand and governor blackall took charge of affairs in queensland he was a man of fine talents and amiable character and was greatly respected by the colonists but he died not long after his arrival and was succeeded by the marquis of normanby who was succeeded in eighteen seventy four by mr cairns sir arthur kennedy in eighteen seventy seven sir arthur musgrave in eighteen eighty three sir arthur hunter palmer in eighteen eighty eight and general sir h wiley norman bring the list of governors to the present year eighteen ninety four queensland possesses magnificent resources which have only recently been made known and are now in the process of development her exports of gold exceed two million pounds a year she produces large quantities of tin copper silver and other minerals the wool clipped from her sheep exceeds one million four hundred thousand pounds in annual value and her total exports including cotton sugar and other tropical productions amount to about six million pounds per annum the population is now about half a million and immigrants continue to arrive at the rate of about sixteen thousand a year although the youngest of the australian colonies queensland now ranks fourth on the list and appears to have the most promising future before her her cotton industry has almost vanished and her sugar plantations have passed through troublesome times but there seem to be good hopes for them in the future however it will be in the raising of sheep and of cattle as well as in the gold mining that the colony will have to look for her most permanent resources she now has nearly twenty million sheep and six million cattle and sends wool tallow hides and frozen meat to england while she supplies prime bullocks for the melbourne market chapter twelve the aborigines australian history practically begins with the arrival of the white man for before that time though tribe fought with tribe and there were many doings of savage men there is nothing that could be told as a general story each tribe of from twenty to a couple hundred dusky forms wandered over the land seeking animals to hunt and fresh water to drink they were very thinly spread not more than one person to ten square miles yet every little tribe was at deadly feud with its neighbour 
the tribe wandered over the grassy and park-like lands the men stalking ahead with spears and boomerangs in hand the women trudging behind loaded with babies and utensils at evening they camp and the men put up frail breakwinds consisting of a few branches and leafy tufts behind this on the sheltered side a few leaves made a bed meantime the fire was lit close by and soon a dozen little columns of blue smoke curled up among the trees the opossum or duck or wallaby is soon cooked or half cooked the men devour as much as they want and pass on the remains to the women and children a frog or two and a lizard or a few grubs taken out of decayed timber or perhaps a few roots that have been dug up on the march by the women form a sort of dessert after dusk there is the sound of chatter around fires then all retire to rest with the glowing embers of the fires to give them warmth at daybreak all are awake if there is food at hand they may stay at the camp for weeks together but if not they journey on each man had as many wives as he could obtain he did not support them but they supported him and when children became too numerous he lessened his family by killing off a few more than half the children were thus destroyed their enjoyments consisted of games with a kind of ball and mock fights but especially in wild dance they called the corroboree they were in general good-humoured when things went pleasantly but a man would spear his wife through the leg or dash his child's brains out readily enough when things were not to his taste and nobody would think any the worse of him for it. End of chapter 16